We are in the 28th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Wow! It's been a, quite a journey. This journey started in May of 2011. So we have been at this for a little over five years. And we are now at the very end. The very end. There is a certain sadness in my heart. Kind of like saying goodbye to an old friend. But we're not yet. We're, we're not, I'm not done yet. There are, Lord willing, about three more sermons. So today and a couple of more. By which we'll finish this out. I know. Nobody thought I would finish the Great Commission in one sermon. That would be nearly impossible. So about three, I think. About three sermons. So we're, gonna, we're looking here at verses 16 through 20. It is uh, commonly called the Great Commission. It's probably set out that way in your Bible. And I was going to title the sermon the Great Commission, but that's, um, that's so pedestrian. So I've chosen this as a title, at least for this morning. Uh, this morning we're looking at this under the title of Matthew's Final Lessons. Matthew's Final Lessons. What is it that Matthew would want the readers of his gospel to know? What's sort of the final impression that he wants to leave with those who read his gospel? Jesus said and did many things, and when you read other gospels, you get other endings, as it were. But Matthew has chosen to end this way, and it's so well-known, so familiar. There is a danger for us, you know, familiarity, breeding, contempt, and all that sort of thing, to, to sort of kind of say, oh, yeah, I know what all that's about. Yeah, go into all the world, right? Make disciples of the nations, baptizing and teaching and so forth. So I'm hoping by the Spirit of God that he would enable us to come to this with, with some humility, with some openness to perhaps see it, hear it in a new kind of way. Matthew's final lessons. What would Matthew want us to take away as a final impression after 28 long chapters? Well, let's set some context before we try to answer that question. Let's set a little context. We've got to, we've got to dive in here. So, so the events here in, chap, in chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, occur following, obviously, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, they occur in the, in the time period uh, normally known as the 40 days that uh, Luke talks about in Acts, where Jesus you know, met with his disciples over a period of 40 days and instructed them in many things. And this is one of those meetings, one of those re- post-resurrection appearances. So you remember last week, I I told you that on Resurrection Sunday, there were five appearances of the resurrected Lord to various uh, individuals or groups of disciples, right? He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, and then he appeared to the other women there at the tomb. We looked at that last week. He appeared, according to uh, Luke's gospel, he appeared to Peter, At some point, the actual meeting with Peter is not uh, spoken of. It's not narrated for us. But the fact that he did is told to us in Luke 24. So he met with Peter. They're restoring Peter after Peter's incredible lapse of faith there on the, the night of Jesus' trial. 
And then he met with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember that. They were, they were going down from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Jesus appeared to them. They walked along with him. They talked about a lot of things. They uh, thought that this guy must have been asleep. You know, this is Ramp Van Winkle or something because he doesn't apparently know what's going on. And the whole city's talking about the prophet from Nazareth who, Nazareth who has been crucified. And, and some of the people are saying that he's, you know, that he's alive, that he's been raised from the dead. And, and of course, you know, they get there and they have dinner. And in the breaking of the bread, they recognize him and psh, he's gone. Then there is the final appearance on that Resurrection Sunday narrated by John in his gospel where he narrates that the ten disciples are there. So Judas, of course, has already gone out, um, likely hanged himself by this point, and Thomas is not with that group. And so there he appears to the ten disciples in that room where the doors are all locked. You remember, he comes into their midst and says, peace be with you, and so forth. So that was the Sunday night appearance. So five appearances on Sunday. In the In the subsequent time period until Pentecost, the scriptures record for us five more appearances. Five more. Now, there could have been more than that for sure, but there are at least five more appearances of the resurrected Jesus Christ to one or more of his his, uh, people. And so here they are, just to kind of get it in your mind, get a little framework here. And so... The next one narrated is narrated again by John. It's in John chapter 20, and it's to, ta- it's to the uh, 11 this time. So it's the, to the 10 plus Thomas. They're, they're in the same room, John tells us. John's, uh, John 20, verses 26 to 31. It says eight days later, but that's inclusive reckoning. So you begin on a Sunday, you end on a Sunday. That's how you get eight days. And so there on the following Sunday, the 11 are gathered. They're in the same basic uh, predicament in that they're... they're um, they're behind locked doors and barred windows, and they're very much afraid for their lives, and Jesus appears in their midst, right? And that's where he says to Thomas, right, stretch forth your finger, stick it in the hole in my hands, stretch forth your hand, stick it into the spare wound in my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. And, of course, Thomas responds with the most incredible, incredible statement to come from the mouth of an Orthodox Jew, right? My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. So that's a, just an incredible, incredible scene. Next, the Gospels narrate us. Uh, again, we're dependent on John for this. John 21, 1 to 23. They narrate another meeting. This one, north in Galilee. So the meeting with, with the 11 that occurred, you know, the following Sunday after the resurrection occurred in Jerusalem. So they were still in Jerusalem. Why were they in Jerusalem? They had been told to go Galilee, remember? They're still in Jerusalem. Why? Well, it's because it's the Passover. So there's, a, there's the seven-day feast that's going on. So they are still good Orthodox Jewish people. And so they're, they're there for the entire period of the feast. And then they return home with the rest of the pilgrims. So, the next encounter, John 21, 1 to 23, is there in Galilee. And this is the one where Peter says, I'm going fishing. Remember that? I'm going fishing. And, and uh, six of the other disciples who are with him that are named there, they say, we'll go too. So, they go fishing. And they, like um, many fishermen, they fish all night and catch butkus. That's a fishing term for Nothing. They don't catch anything. 
And then there's this guy on the shore who calls out to them and says, uh, Hey, boys, how you doing? You got anything? And they say, No, not anything. And he says, Do what? Cast your nets onto the right-hand side. They cast their nets. They catch such a swarm of fish that they can barely haul it to shore. And in the process, Jesus is identified. I believe it's John who calls him out. And Peter is just so overcome with love for his Lord that he jumps overboard. And uh, it's not going to wait till the ship comes back or the, the boat comes back in. He swims ashore, and the scene narrates Jesus having prepared a fire. He's broiled fish. He's prepared bread. And they eat a meal together. It's there that Jesus publicly reinstitutes and recommissions Peter as the leader of the apostle of the apostolic group. And you remember that. Peter, do you love me? Right? Three times he asks him that. Okay? Once for each of Peter's denials. The third occurrence narrated in the in the uh, record of the New Testament is the occurrence that we have here in Matthew twenty eight. Matthew twenty eight, sixteen to twenty narrates the next, I believe it's chronological, the next chronological appearance of the resurrected Lord with his disciples. And this is an interesting one because Matthew really just, uh, well, he, he speaks of the 11, for sure, verse 16, but, and we'll get into it here in a minute or two, but, but it includes a larger group. I'm pretty persuaded of this, that it includes a larger group. You remember over in 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul is, is laying out the resurrection and all the witnesses of the resurrection. You remember that? And he says he appeared at one time to more than 500 disciples, most of whom are still alive to this day, Paul says. So that's about 25 years when 1 Corinthians is written, about AD 55. And when Paul writes that, and so assuming the Lord was uh, crucified in AD 30 and We'll go with that for now. That's about 25 years later that the majority of those 500 witnesses are still alive. I am persuaded that the event in which Christ appeared to the more than 500 is the event narrated here in Matthew 28. Okay, so I think that's the time. I think that's the event. So we have that, the 500 plus. We're also told, interestingly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, that Jesus appeared to his half-brother, James. It, that's the only information we have. Of course, James later goes on to, to become a believer, right? And a pastor later of the Jerusalem church, and uh, writes the, uh, the epistle, James, and so forth. So, so there, Jesus appears to his brother, James. And what's so really uh, amazing about all of that, of course, is that James was... Uh, before the crucifixion, was uh, vehemently opposed to the mission of his older half-brother, Jesus. Right? He was an unbelieving man. So he is converted, and we're told by Paul that it was a, a direct uh, meeting of the resurrected Christ with his half-brother. Presumably, sometime around this also, Jesus appeared to his other half-brother, Jude, who also then became a believer and, of course, wrote the little teeny letter there at the end of your New Testament before Revelation called Jude. So you've got these resurrection appearances. And then finally, Luke 24, Acts chapter 1, narrate uh, uh, the, the final appearance of the resurrected Christ with his people. And now it's back in Jerusalem. So it's been Jerusalem, Galilee, Jerusalem again. 
So this one occurs in Jerusalem, and this is where they accompany him out to the Mount of Olives, right? And they ask him, you know, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He says, hey, it's not for you to know basically the times and seasons that the Father is determined in his own you know, sovereign plan. You are to remain here until you receive the gift that I have promised to you. The gift promised to you is the coming of the Spirit of God who comes on Pentecost. And when the Spirit of God comes, he ushers in the, the age of the Spirit, which is the very age in which we live. It is the age of the new covenant. So, that's that final thing. And then, of course, Jesus is lifted up, you know, uh, physically from them. He, he rises up, and they're looking up there, and the angels say, Hey, don't worry. He's coming back. In fact, he's coming the same way he left, i.e. bodily. He'll be here. You just go be busy doing what he told you to do. And so that's where we are. So we are. Actually, there is, there is one more appearance of the resurrected Lord to one other person. That's Paul. Now, let me show you. I'm on a roll here. Um, none of this is in the notes, and that's okay. You don't have to pay extra. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I got three weeks. I can do whatever I want. So 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul is laying out all of these, these uh, post-resurrection appearances. I just want to, this is worth a point. I don't know where else I would fit it in, so I'm fitting it in here. And, but it's important and it's instructive in the day and age we live in which there's so much confusion going on about people thinking they've seen Jesus and all this sort of stuff. So I want you to see there, um, well, we'll pick it up in verse uh, 5 because that's at the top of my page. And he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Okay, so I've already told you about those, right? He appeared to Peter and then he appeared to... They call him the twelve, but there's only eleven at this point still. All right, but they're called the twelve, just so you know who he's talking about. Uh, And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep. So that's the Matthew 28, 16 to 20 passage, I believe. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, here it is, to one untimely uh, born, he appeared to me also. This is what I want you to see. Last of all. That's not just last in a sequence of events. The idea being communicated here is I am the last living person to see the resurrected Christ in his human body here on earth. I'm it. I am it. Okay? He appeared to me, Paul says. Pretty emphatic there. After me, there is no other. There is no other. Okay? So people think they see all kinds of things, and who am I to tell somebody what they think they didn't or didn't see? That's not the point. What I can say with real strong certainty is that that you have not experienced an appearance of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrected human body. No, you didn't. That I can be sure to say. Okay? He's done. He sealed it off. He sealed it off with Paul. After Paul, no more apostles. No more. Okay? They are the foundation of the church. They are the foundation of the church. The church is built upon the apostles and prophets. And by the way, that's New Testament prophets, not Old Testament prophets. It's built on the, on the, on the foundation of the apostles and New Testament prophets. Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2, right? And Paul is the last one. 
That's it. Okay? We all good? Good. All right. So where was I? I'm back in uh, Matthew 28. Matthew 28. So we've, we've got these resurrection appearances. This is the one to the 500. So what I want to do, looking at this passage, and we're not going to exhaust it. We're just going to get into it a little bit here. In Matthew's final lessons, I think there are four of them. So my structure here is four lessons we are to take away from Matthew's final words. There are four lessons, I believe, that we can take away from Matthew's final words that he has recorded for us here. Okay? First lesson. First lesson. For some disciples, full faith comes slowly. Lesson number one. For some disciples, full faith comes slowly. Praise God. And we'll explain that in a minute. Verse 16, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. Notice he begins here with the adversative, but, right? But, so he's setting the behavior of the disciples here in contrast to something. He's setting it in contrast to the prior groups that have been shown here. So we have the soldiers who, who for a shameless bribe are going around and, and uh, spreading this lie about the disciples having come while they were asleep and has stolen the body, right? The, the uh, leadership themselves, those who, who, of the Sanhedrin who were, des, who were de, de designated by God to be the ones to receive the Messiah for the nation, they're the ones who put them up to this. So in contrast to this, we have the 11. And for the 11... They are obedient. They are faithful. They proceed to Galilee. Now, Jesus has told them that. He's told them that multiple times. Go to Galilee. Go to Galilee. You'll see me there. Go to Galilee, right? 28.10, Jesus said to them, to the women, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Chapter 26. The Last Supper, verse 32, Jesus said, But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So he has told them, listen, I'm going to, once I'm raised from the dead, I'm going to go to Galilee. You are to go to Galilee too. I will meet you in Galilee. Be there. And so, being obedient to the Lord, they proceed to Galilee. To the mountain which Jesus had designated. So evidently there was a mountain place that Jesus had previously told them, meet me there. I will be there. I will meet you on the mountain. Which mountain? Doesn't say. Man, do I wish I knew. Doesn't say what mountain. Just meet me at the mountain, the one that I had already designated. Okay, permit me a little sanctified speculation. There must have been a mountain, obviously, that they all knew about. It must have been a, it been a mountain that, that uh, I would suspect they'd been to more than one occasion. So it would be very familiar 
And I'm going to postulate, admittedly, that it was Mount Arbel. Mount Arbel. If you have ever been to Israel, you know Mount Arbel. You will never forget it. If you have not been to Israel, it would be great if you could go. And if you think it's never going to happen in this life, be of good cheer. You'll have a thousand years in the millennial kingdom to save up and to go to Israel. So you'll make it. Mount Arbel is this imposing mountain that at one side of it is virtually a sheer cliff. It is located on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, just a little bit south of Magdala. So just a little bit below the halfway point on the Sea of Galilee. It is about 1,250 feet above the, the plain. And from the edge of the cliff, and it depends how close you want to go, because there's no rails or things like that. Some people sit with their feet hanging over. I think that's nuts, personally. So I was a, a little more timid than that. So I can't tell you what's directly at the base of it, because I didn't get that close. But I can tell you this, that from Mount Arbel, you have the most amazing view of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, of Galilee itself. You can see Mount Hermon, you can see the Golan Heights, you can see Capernaum, you can see Magdala, you can see it all. It all stretches out before you. Does that prove this is the mountain? No, it doesn't prove anything. But I said, permit me a little sanctified speculation. I think that that's probably the place they went. I think it's probably the place they went. In any case, it was a place that was needed to be free from distractions, free from interference. So it's got to be someplace a little bit out of the way. But anyway, it's there, and it's that mountain. And, and by the way, you might ask yourself, why did he tell him to go to Galilee? Why meet me in Galilee? Did you ever think about that? Why meet me in Galilee? Why didn't he say, I'll, you know, I'm going to meet you here in Jerusalem? In fact, later he, he tells him, go to Jerusalem. He meets him in Jerusalem, and he, he ascends back to the, to the right hand of the Father from Jerusalem. So, so what's the Galilee deal? Why Galilee? Now, some say, well, it's because most of his disciples and his following were from Galilee, and that's true. His reception in Galilee was better than his reception in Judea. There's truth to that. Although even in Galilee, you remember how he called out on the various cities and he, and he said to them, you know, woe is you because if Sodom and Gomorrah, if Tyre and Sidon had heard and seen what you have heard and seen, they would have repented. They're going to rise up. The Queen of Sheba will rise up at the judgment and will uh, condemn you. Because you've had the Messiah in your midst for 18 months and yet you, for the most part, don't believe. But still, Galilee was uh, kind of his base of operations, and it's his biggest following. So that may well be his reason to be there. But I think it goes beyond that. I mean, he certainly could have told his disciples. I mean, somehow word got out for the 500 to be there, right? So I think that word could have gone out and said, hey, you know, I'll, you make your trip down to Jerusalem. I'm going to meet you all down there. So I think there's more to it than that. And, and the more to it than that, I think, is found in Isaiah chapter 9. I will turn you there to Isaiah chapter 9. 
Now, we love Isaiah chapter 9. We put it on our Christmas cards. Well, we don't put the whole chapter. We just put verses 6 and 7, right? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is an incredible prophecy, right, of the coming Davidic king. But I want you to go back to the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee was a very ethnically diverse area. Those that were more pure in their Jewishness lived in the south. You'll remember when when the kingdom was divided in 722, that the Assyrians, or excuse me, 931, the Assyrians in 722 swept away the ten northern tribes. You remember that? They were taken away by the Assyrians. And the land was repopulated by trans. Uh, furring people, other conquered peoples, back into the land. And so, the, the, uh, and then there was problems, and so they brought back some heretical priests. And, and the long and short of it is the, the Samaritans grew up from all of that. But, but more importantly than that is that the land of Galilee was a very uh, Gentile-rich territory. But it was also very rich in, in Jews, so Judea, Jerusalem, not a lot of Gentiles and, and more ethnically pure Jews, as it were. In the north, you've got a lot more, you know, your next door neighbor is a Gentile. And, you know, there's some people whose bloodlines maybe we're not quite sure about. And, and so you've got the massive of, of uh, Israel, which is one of the reasons Jesus spent so much time up there. And you've got this massive Gentile audience And beyond that, the trade routes coming in from the the northeast pass through and swoop around the north of the Sea of Galilee. They come through Capernaum. That's why Matthew had a tax collection office there. He was collecting duties and customs from the caravans that were coming through. They sweep down. They come through the pass by Mount Arbel. They go down into the Megiddo Valley. They leave the exit, the, uh, the Valley of Megiddo, and then they come down the coastal highway down to Egypt to trade. So what's the point? The point is that the Gentile world can be seen from Mount Arbel. The Gentile world lives in representative form in Galilee. It is known as Galilee of the Gentiles. And Jesus' commission for his disciples is going to be, verse 16, to do what? Make disciples of the nations. The nations, the Gentiles. 
the Gentiles. So I think that's why he designated this meeting in this place at this time. So they get a vision of of what the monumental task is that lies before them. They are to disciple the nations. So the eleven proceed to Galilee, verse 16, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Okay. So they saw him, they worshipped him. That is the, the, the universal reaction of people who see the resurrected Lord. They, they worship him. They, they fall on their knees and worship him. So we should expect that. We should expect that. But then, contrast, look at verse 17. But some were doubtful. Some were doubtful. Distazo. It means to doubt. It means to waver. It means to hesitate. But some were wavering. But some were hesitating. The word only appears one other time in the New Testament. It appears in Matthew's Gospel. It appears in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 31. So go ahead. It's worth it. This is a scene where Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? Plus, plus women and children. So probably fifteen to 20,000 individuals. Does it from a little boy's lunch. He sends the disciples on ahead. The crowd wants to make him king. He dismisses them. He goes off up the mountain to pray by himself. And then later, while the disciples are straining at their oars in the midst of a terrible storm, right? Jesus uh, walks on the water. And uh, depending which gospel account you look at, uh, it appears that he was basically going to pass them by. And uh, they see him. They call out. They think it's a ghost, whatever. Jesus turns to them. And then Peter says, verse 28, that's where I want you to look. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, began to sink. And and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you distazo? Why did you hesitate? Why did you waver? Why did you doubt? It's the only other use. You little faith men. In other words, why do you hesitate? Why did you hesitate to believe that I am who I am? And stop coming to me. You, 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 you were making progress and you, and you just kind of froze for a moment. You you hesitated. Now, it's not as though Peter has no faith, right? 
I mean, he's the only guy who gets out of the boat. So Peter's got tremendous faith. He gets out of the boat in the middle of the storm. But his faith is not full. It's not complete. It's not fully matured yet. And in in the midst of the circumstances, he he begins to waver, he begins to hesitate, he begins to doubt, right? And you know the outcome. That's what I think is being communicated here. It's the same word back in 28. When they saw him, who's the they? The antecedent of the pronoun they would be the 11 disciples. When the 11 disciples saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. Who were the some? Well, the some could be some of the 11. It's possible grammatically. But I'm not inclined to think that. I'm inclined to think that the sum is a reference to the unnamed 500 plus that are there with them. Some of them hesitate. Some of them doubt. Some of them waver a little. Now, I can't know for sure. Can't know for sure. Can't be positive. Can't make a, make a firm linguistic argument here that settles it. So it could be some of the 11. Could be, which I'm inclined to believe, some of the 500. But here's a question. Why does Matthew tell us that? Why does he include that? Just a piece of human interest, you know, you're writing, you know, you want to be a good writer, so you've got to keep stuff, you know, you've got to keep, them, keep the narrative flowing, you don't want people to get bored, so you just, I throw this in. I'm not saying that, you know, it didn't happen or anything, but you ever ask yourself a question, why? I mean, you're like, you're getting to the end of your gospel. You know, you're running out of ink. <laughs> you're at the end of the scroll. There's going to be no part two on this one. Luke's gospel has a part two. It's called Acts. There's no part two for Matthew's gospel. So he's getting to the end of the scroll here. You know, there's not an infinite amount of paper and ink. I I call it the paper and ink principle of Bible interpretation. Here's the paper and ink principle of Bible interpretation. It's to ask yourself, since there is a finite supply of paper and ink, and they were incredibly expensive in the first century, Why did the writer, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, write what he wrote and leave out what he left out? There's a purpose. So what is the purpose? Why, Matthew, do you tell us this? Now, some would answer this and say, well, it's just kind of the human interest thing or whatever, and and they, and they think that the, that the hesitation, the doubting, is, is that the people at the back of the crowd couldn't see who Jesus was. So the idea is the people at the front of the crowd, as they're coming, you know, they see Jesus, they kneel, they worship, it's a big crowd, people at the back, they're not sure, they hesitate, they're doubting, who is that? You know, what's, what's going on up there? And then they look here to verse 18, where notice it says, and Jesus came up. And so let's say, yeah, see, you know, he's at a distance, and as he gets closer, even the guys at the back can figure out who it is, and so their doubting goes away too. I just think that's a lot of paper and ink to, to communicate something that's worthless. 
It doesn't really tell me anything. So I think there's more to it than this. Here's my idea. I believe that Matthew includes this this statement that some were hesitating, some were doubtful, some were wavering, because the context of this is to go out into the world and make what? Disciples. To go out into the world and to make disciples. And I believe in light of this great commission that Matthew is now going to, to narrate for us, it's a very important piece of information for the disciple maker. It's important for the disciple maker. And here it is. Jesus' resurrection did not instantly transform men of little faith and faltering understanding into spiritual giants. Let me say it again. Jesus' resurrection did not instantly transform men of little faith and faltering understanding into spiritual giants. And that's something that we would do well to remember in our own disciple-making endeavors. It takes time. It takes patience. Working with people is not like making widgets. It is not a production line. You don't input the raw materials, you know, give it a zap of energy, and out the end of the production line is spitting these units one after another, all identical, right? And you just have a QC guy go through the pile and maybe take out the occasional flaw. That is not disciple-making. Now, it doesn't mean that disciple-making cannot and even shouldn't include thoughtful processes, but the point of the matter is it's not a production process. You are working with people. And people mature at all kinds of speeds and paces. We know that from the agricultural world. You plant seeds, right? Paul uses the agricultural metaphor in the whole context of disciple-making. And he says, some plant, some water, right? Some harvest. God gives the growth. Now, that's true at at the moment of conversion, yes. But it's true beyond that. So you can put some seeds in the ground, and they sprout really quickly, and you get fruit really fast. Other seeds you put in the ground, and it takes a long time. People are like that. Some people, boom, you know, they just... They respond to the gospel, and then they start devouring the scriptures, and they're growing and growing and growing. And in a matter of a couple years, you're you're saying, whoa, this thing's like a mighty tree. And other people, it's just a slow process. If you're a parent, and you're raising children, and you're making disciples in your home, you need to know this, that just because they came from you and, and share your DNA doesn't mean they all mature in the same way and at the same time. God has made them individuals. So you can get frustrated when you start comparing one disciple to another. That, you know, why is this one so mature and this one's not? Well, assuming not overt sin involved here, then, then there's, you've got to give room for the agricultural cycle. Patience. May God give us patience in disciple-making. I believe it's one of the greatest things we lack. So patience. 
And the willingness, that's sort of a byproduct of patience, is to repeat the same lessons over and over again. Repeat the same lessons over and over again. Now again, if you're a parent here or you've raised your children, they're already out of the home and so forth, you know that the teaching is more than telling. That it's more than just telling somebody the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do and doing it once and that's all it takes. Wouldn't that be wonderful? It'd be a snap. But it's not that way. It's not that way with our children. It's not that way with us. It's not that way with with our fellow brothers and sisters. There is a process of repetition that is inherent in disciple-making. And that's that's an outgrowth of patience. How many times do I need to repeat the lesson? Answer, until you get it. That's how many times. I need to teach you again and again and again. And, I'm, and, I, and I need to find different ways to communicate it, and I need to find different il- ways to illustrate it, and I need to find different ways to, to enflesh it in my own life so that you get it because the, uh, the, the outcome and the desire is that you grow in the likeness of Christ. And so how often? Many as it takes. Many as it takes. I mean, think of your own life. How many times have you had to be instructed over and over again before it sticks? And then you still have to be instructed again, right? Because we're forgetful. We're hesitant. We're doubtful at times. The ministry of reminders. The ministry of reminders. Sometime... Take a concordance and look up remind, reminding, reminder in your New Testament. And, and trace it. I'm going to take you to 2 Peter. I'm just going to show you one. The 2 Peter chapter 1. This is all under the, the heading, right? That the becoming a, a fully mature disciple takes time. It doesn't happen the same way for everybody. So part of the process is, is reminding people. And the writers of the New Testament are, are, you know, Paul and Peter and John and Jude and so forth. They all talk about reminding and they all say, it's no burden to do this. I'm not, I'm not like, you know, irritated or, or exasperated or impatient with you because haven't I already told you these things? They say, hey, it's no trouble. I'll tell you again. So, so notice this, verse 12, chapter 1. Therefore, therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things. We'll look in a minute what these things are even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, 
knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is eminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter's saying, listen, it's not a problem for me. I'm happy to do it, to remind you of what it means to be a follower of Christ, to teach you the lessons over and over and over again. Well, what are the these things in verse 12? We notice it begins with a therefore. That's a conclusion kind of word. So something important has gone before. And so therefore, taking a look back at what's before it, these things, what things? Well, here it is. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and experience, or excellence, excuse me. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from the former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. It's no trouble for me to remind you that with your faith must come Morality, ethics. You are saved by grace through faith alone, but it is not a faith that walks alone. It is a faith that will transform you. There is an ethical component to the gospel. We'll look at it probably next week when we're talking about teaching them to obey all that I taught you. There is an ethical component to the gospel that must be obeyed. So supply with your faith moral excellence. Knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And I will remind you of it again and again and again and again. Why? Because we're all like children. We're, We're like children. You look at your child and you say, Child, why did you do that? And they say, I don't know. And then you say, I need to teach you this lesson again. Right? I need to teach you this lesson again. 
Now, there may be consequences that go with that. I don't know. But like a loving father, the writer of the Hebrews says, right? When at the moment of the fatherly correction, it's not a lot of fun. But afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We're children. We're just children. And children need to be reminded and taught and instructed patiently over and over and over and over again. If you want to pray for your leaders, pray for patience. If you want to pray for your own parenting or the, or the parents, you know, your friends who are parents, pray for patience. If you want to pray for someone who's involved in a, in a disciple-making relationship with somebody, or you're involved in it yourself, pray for what? Patience. When we are patient, we, we display and exhibit the character of God, who is incredibly patient with us. Incredibly patient. We need continual reminders. Reminders. 